0: David Solomon, podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. I'm going to talk tonight about the book of Iyov, uh, otherwise known as the book of Job, but we're going to call him Iyov. This talk naturally is no substitute for reading the text. And I always repeat that. I have to repeat it to myself and I say it to anyone who is listening. Nothing you can hear about any of the books of Tanakh can be a substitute for engaging with the text and engaging with the text at different times in your life. The book of Iyov is not like other books in Tanakh. Other books in Tanakh present a more or less clear prophetic direction or they are communicating a narrative that takes you on a journey historically as well as spiritually but the book of Yav is like none of that. The book of Yav is a book that is primarily a philosophical discussion. Now some of us sat in this very room and we did a whole series on philosophy last year and I'm going to draw on elements of that because I'm assuming that these talks can be progressive and I can slightly build on what we've discussed before but if I do talk about anything and people are confused or don't understand I really need you to let me know I don't want you to sit here not knowing what I'm talking about it's bad enough that I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The book of Iyov is primarily a discussion. We don't know who wrote it. And we don't know who Iyov was. And we don't know when he lived. And we know garnished about all of those factors. Even the biblical critics, the big Bacon-munching apikursim sitting in different places in the world will tell you, we have no idea when it was written. And Chazal have no idea when it was written. Well, they, some of them have some ideas. Obviously, there's a famous Gemara brought in Baba Batra, in uh, Duff of Tetvav, and thereabouts, the continuing pages, which is a big discussion of Yov, when he lived, and there's no less than about eight or so opinions brought about Eov, including the famous opinion, of course, that he never lived at all. That, in fact, the whole of the book of Eov is a parable. Now, those of you who go, oh, how can he say that about one of the spiritual figures of the Bible that he never existed, I would like to remind you that that opinion is also shared by no lesser figure than the Rambam. For those of you for whom the Rambam is not from enough, I'm sorry. The Rambam in Morene Vochim is very clear on the uh, explaining, not just of the opinion, but explaining why he thinks that this is an extremely deep and mysterious book, but at EOV didn't actually exist. And remember, please, I'm just going to say this as a qualifying footnote. I know that there are a lot of learned people in this room. And I know that There are two types of people that come to my talks. There are people who want to hear about the topic I'm going to talk about, and there are those who come to see how I get it all wrong. And I therefore want to tell the second group that I totally respect your project, uh, but please bear in mind that *EYOV* is a book that for every opinion, you can find the opposite opinion in all sources, some say he was a sinner some say he was righteous some say he was a jew some say he was a Goy. some say he lived there some say he lived there there is different opinions it's a very very difficult book to understand it's a very difficult book to understand if we can understand it at all You have to read it hundreds of times just to get the basic underlying message. The message is embedded in poetry. It's a massive poem, in effect. There's a bit of narrative at the beginning and the end, but the whole thing is really a huge poem. It also possibly, possibly, and I also don't want people to run out of the room screaming up in choruses at this, but... It is possible that the book of Eiov has been slightly reconfigured over the generations. This is an opinion held by several scholars, and with good reason. There are some chapters that appear a little bit out of sequence, but overall it's fairly coherent, but you really have to read it closely and carefully, and also, as I always say, strive to read it in the Hebrew, because it is stunning Hebrew, even if it is the most difficult Hebrew in Tanakh. Alright? Everyone by now should know what Ahaxelagomene uh, is. It's a word that appears only once in Tanakh. And therefore, our understanding of what it means relies completely on Mesorah relies completely on tradition the great sages and scholars of the people of Israel have handed down the meanings of words as they are in context but Iyov has more of those than any other book in Tanakh it's got about a hundred words that are unique to Iyov so between all this the commentators, the scholars the individual readers like ourselves we are climbing through this jungle of meaning to try and work out what is going on in the course of this talk, I will go over the whole book of Eov, chapter by chapter. And we will try and make sense and distill from it exactly what is going on. Now, Eov lived in a land, according to the book of Iyav, and this is one reason why some of the rabbis say he must have lived, because otherwise why would his address have been given? He lived in a land called Utz. Uts, nice place. Uh, we're not sure, of course, where Utz is. There are various opinions on Utz. Utz is mentioned in the Torah. Who was Utz? Uh, the, Abraham's nephew. He was the son of Nahor. Et Utz Bechorov et Buz Achiv, says the Torah. Utz was the son of, Achor, of Nahor, which means he was a nephew of Avraham. That, of course works well with people that want to place Eov in the time of Avraham, which is one of the strong opinions in Midrash and in Talmud about when Eov lived. But we really don't know where Utz is. There are indications that Utz may be part of the general territory of Edom, which would place it sort of southeast of the land of Israel. And there are other factors indicating that as well. Or Utz may be somewhere near today's Armenia, if you want to put him up near Aram, around where the family of Nahor was supposedly living. We don't know where exactly Utz is, but Iyov, who we don't know if he existed, was definitely living there. (laughs) Now, Iyov wasn't just an ordinary fellow. Sometimes we read the Tanakh and, we go, and sometimes we don't stop and think what the Tanakh is telling us about the person it's talking about. Let's spend a moment on Eov and who he was. The first verses of Eov tell us that he was living in the land of Uz and that he was... An extremely righteous person. Extremely righteous person. There is so much material on Eov that sometimes if you try to bring it down coherently into a talk of an hour or so, you are literally got to censor and weld material to make sense. But there is one stunning Midrash that we have on the book of Iyav that is a famous Midrash that I'm sure many of you are aware of. This is a Midrash that places Iyav in the time of Moshe, there is a strong opinion that Eov was a contemporary of Moshe. Now, this midrash is huge. It's a midrash that tells us that Paro, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, when he was making his decrees against the Jewish people, specifically the decree to wipe them out and throw every firstborn male into the river, an effective genocide of the Jewish people. That he took consultation with three big advisors. As I can see by the people nodding, that this is a familiar midrash, but it's worth mentioning. It's a very deep midrash, and we're going to come back to it later. He takes consultation with three advisors. These three advisors are Bilam the famous Bilam, the prophet of the Gentiles, the wicked prophet of the Gentiles, who goes on to attempt to curse the Jewish people later on. He takes counsel with Yitro, Jethro, who goes on to become the father-in-law of Moshe, and he takes counsel with a guy called Eov, who is a big dude at the time. Bilam basically says, decrees against the Jewish people, Very worth your while, Pharaoh, because, as you know, the Jewish people are going to rise up and they're going to cause you all sorts of hassle. Better off wipe them out now. Yitro was so repulsed by these decrees that he actually ran away. He avoided Pharaoh and he ran away and he went to live in Midian and eventually became the father-in-law of Moshe and even joined the Jewish people. Yeov abstained he was neutral. as a consequence of that neutrality God sent the Satan to afflict Eov so that the Satan would be distracted while the Jewish people were coming out of Egypt and they would be able to come out in merit of deeds that they otherwise might not have merited to had the Satan not been totally preoccupied with Eov. It's a very big midrash and it has many deep layers. But we'll get back to the book. Eyov is a righteous person. And the book of Eov tells us just how righteous he was. It uses four expressions. Tam, innocent, sincere, genuine. Difficult word, as you know, to translate. We all know that word from the Haggadah. Okay. It's it, 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 the idea of sincerity. He was Yashar. He was upright. He was Yirei Elohim. He feared God. And he was Sarmerah. He would turn away from evil. He avoided evil. You can think that abstaining is avoiding evil. Eov is all these things. He's a very, very righteous person. And he's not only righteous, he's seriously cashed up. He is extremely wealthy. Think of the most righteous person you can think of in the world, the holiest, most saintly person you can think of, and then make them the wealthiest person in the world. That's Eov. So much so, in fact, that what we really understand from the book is that Iyov was a living testament to divine justice. If you can be as saintly and as righteous as Iyov, then this is what's going to happen to you. Things will be good. He was like a living, walking kiddush Hashem. Look at me. I'm really righteous and I'm really wealthy. He had sheep, and he had oxen, and he had donkeys, and he had camels, and he had servants, and he had tents, and he had land, and he had trees, and he had crops, and he had everything. And he was righteous. But he was also a little nervous. Yov was not a chilled out person. He was in fact quite anxious about all this because he knew about himself that he was righteous and that he was wealthy and that these two ideas were connected. And therefore, he was constantly on tenderhooks. He was constantly on edge to make sure that nothing went wrong that would upset this incredible balance. Iov had a lot of children. These children were wonderful children and they loved each other and they used to go to each other's houses for Shabbos, dinners, and it was wonderful. And every time they did that, Eov would go into stress mode and say, Oh, I hope they didn't do anything wrong. And he would offer sacrifices to God in order to recompense for any wrong, that not only that they did, but even wrong that they might have thought. He tried to compensate for the possibility of his children thinking the wrong thoughts. He was constantly on edge. He had, and it's very interesting when you look carefully at Eov, he had... A mechanical relationship with God. You remember when we gave the big uh, talks uh, during the last year, we talked about the Nuviyim, we talked about the Treasar, we talked about the huge revolution that had happened in Am Yisrael during the whole of the prophetic period. The realization that God is not some neutral force that you can interact with according to sacrifices. If I do the rituals the right way, God will act in a certain way. Well, Eov is a bit beyond that. Eov doesn't necessarily believe that it's the right sacrifice or the right ritual that's going to bring about the desired results from God. He understands that the relationship with God has to be a relationship of righteousness, but he's then caught up in what is still a mechanical relationship. He still believes that I can be righteous, and if I'm righteous, God must respond a certain way. I'm the greatest example of righteousness. I'm the greatest example of what can happen to you. Look at me. I'm EOV. I'm great. All right. So far, so good. We understand EOV. We understand what's happening there. And then we have one of, this is all in chapter 1, we have one of the strangest episodes in the whole of Tanakh. There's no question that this episode is El Bizarro, and very, very few places in Tanakh can match this for sheer weirdness. God (laughs) calls a heavenly council of all the angels, and amongst them is the satan now how many places in the bible how many places in tanakh do we hear about satan anyone want to hazard a guess few a few is cheating sorry no it's not just one it is in fact but close it is in fact no it's not two but even closer it's three. <coughs> and they're each very, very different. They're all interesting. Obviously, uh, uh, it's not the range of tonight's talk to go into depth. If I was giving like a four-part course on a Yov, I'd spend a whole lecture on Satan. It's a very interesting topic. But Satan is mentioned here, and we need to be very careful. And I just do want to spend 30 seconds on this. I know that everyone in this room has a fully proper conception of Satan. I mean that in a good way. but. I just need to spend a few seconds on this because I really need to clear or dispel any misunderstandings. We have a very, very different conception of Satan from the Christian conception. There is a conception of Satan that has crept into the world in the last two millennia, last two thousand years, that is purely and only the consequence of a separation in the unified conception of God. Only if you believe that God can become manifest or somehow divided or corporealized into a son and a this and a that, could you have a conception that Satan is somehow its own agency. But in fact, that's not the Jewish conception of Satan at all, and it is certainly not the conception in the book of Eiov's. Satan in the book of Yov is completely subservient to God. It is a messenger of God. It is the adversary that brings before God the faults of human beings and exacts whatever appropriate response is required. Satan comes before God and God says to Satan, the Satan, there's a difference between Satan and the Satan. Of those three mentions of Satan in Tanakh, by the way, the description of Satan in the book of Yov is very similar to the adversarial description of Satan which you'll find in the book of Zechariah in chapter 3 in relation to the Kohen Gadol, Yehoshua, and how the Satan is standing there to accuse him of various things. And Once again there, the Satan is purely an agency of God. It is the third mention of Satan that gets people all... uh, 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 And uh, and that, of course, is in Divrei HaYamim, chapter 21, where the Satan comes and somehow seduces David into the idea of counting the people. If you refer that story back to the book of Shmuel, you'll realize it's Hashem that does that. So we have a solution for that. It is not the case in Jewish thinking. It is not the case in Jewish thinking and I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but I just want to dispel it, that Satan is some angel who decided to rebel against God and then went down into hell and all the rest of it. That is a Miltonian Christian conception of Satan. It does not feature in Jewish thinking. The Satan is completely subservient to God, but God wants to prove a point. God says to Satan, where have you been? Satan goes, oh, wandering around here and there, up, down, whatever." He goes, look, you know, have you seen my great example of justice in the world? My Eov, he's fantastically righteous, and he's upright, and he keeps away from evil. And Satan goes, yes, 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 yes. But that's all very well. But you know, it's all a bit easy for Eov. You call him righteous, but look what you've given him. You've bestowed everything upon him. I mean, what would happen if Eov wasn't so wealthy? What would happen if life was not so good for Eov? Would he still be as righteous? You don't know that. Well, he doesn't say to God, you don't know that. One assumes that God knows the answer. And God says, well, all right, let's test the theory. I'll let you do things to him. Maybe make life not so good for him. Satan doesn't need another invitation. And then, this is all in chapter 1. Off he goes. Eov is there one day. And it's a day when all his families are gathering together in the house of the elder brother. And Eov's going about his business. Obviously, he's a little anxious. And he even says later in the book that he was anxious that day. A messenger arrives to Eov. Your oxen uh, were plowing and your donkeys were hanging out nearby. And suddenly, the Sabaeans came. Now, this, of course, in Hebrew is Shva. Some people think that's the kingdom of Sheba. But more than likely, more than likely, as you know, there's the Mediterranean, there's the land of Israel. More than likely, it's, it's the Sabaeans. The Sabaeans are here in Yemen, but they've got a territory extending there. If, if Utz is here, the Sabaeans came, and they, they fell upon the oxen that were plowing the fields, they took them all away. They took away the donkeys that were you know, grazing nearby. They killed all your servants that were doing the work and looking after the animals. And they made off. Oh, bang. That's the first one. Within minutes, within minutes, another messenger comes and says, I've just come from where we were grazing the flocks, the sheep. And I don't know how to explain it, but a huge fire came out from heaven, probably a meteorite of some sort, and burnt and wiped everybody out, and I'm the only one that was left. Just as the first guy also said, I'm the only one that was left, and I ran to tell you. I'm the only one that was left from the wipeout of the flocks, and I ran to tell you. Within minutes, someone else comes to him and says, uh, the, Chuldin, the Chaldeans, who of course are more Babylonian types, so they're coming from here, they organized three bands and they came upon the camels and they took away all the camels and they wiped out everybody that was looking after the camels and I'm the only one that was left. In one bang, 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 Eov loses all his wealth and then someone comes and says, I mean, talk about a bad day. Someone then comes and says, uh, all your children were gathered in the house of the firstborn and a massive wind came and knocked down the house on top of them. They are all dead. And I am the only one who survived. And I ran from that experience and and I've run to tell you. So all of a sudden, bang, 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 within minutes... What does the Yov do? What does the Yov do? He stands up. He cuts Kriya. He sits down. And he says, Hashem Natan Lakach. God gave. God takes away. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Can you begin to imagine having a day like that? So there you go. Has he passed the test? Yeah. I would say so. Alright, Satan goes back. Chapter 2, Satan goes back to God. And uh, God says, well, you know, what do you think? You wiped out everything he had, including his children. He's now sitting, you know, Lord, He's a massive Avell. Have I not proven the point? Satan goes, ah, <laughs> you know... Someone will do anything, so long as you don't touch them personally. Personally, his body, his soul hasn't actually been touched. Sure, he's lost everything he's got. He's tremendous grieving. His kid's are dead. He's lost all his wealth, but you haven't actually touched him. If you touched him, he'd curse you to your face, God. And God goes, hmm, okay, I'll let you touch him, but don't kill him. Preserve his soul, but you know, you can do things to him, personally, his body. Imagine Iov. Iov is now having lost all his children, and all his property, and all his wealth. He's now sitting in Avilut, and bang, suddenly, he is covered from toe to head in the most excruciating boils. Satana afflicts him with boils. Everybody knows what boils are. Do I need to go into a full description of boils? No. Yep, no, cool. They are, however, there are different types of boils. <laughs> I've done research on boils. Oh, the yep, uh, there are different boils, and all of us at some point might have a boil uh, every once in a while, but these boils were particularly excruciatingly painful. They covered his entire body, they were disgusting. They oozed and they stank and they were foul. The rabbis love getting into this boils concept. And they explain, I mean, I'll bring in a bit of midrash here and there, but the boils is really interesting because it says that Eov sat in dust and ashes, uh, and he took, uh, the text tells us, that he took a, a piece of clay so that he could scrape the boils. The the Grai explains that, in fact, Yov was sitting in a pile of scabs that he'd scraped off his, off his body. Midrash explains that the, the upper half of his body were really really dry painful scabs that that's why he had the piece of clay but the bottom half of his body with his wet oozy pussing boils and that's why he sat in the in the earth and the ashes so they could absorb it it was disgusting and he was just he was a mess and not only was he a mess he was in unbelievable agony the whole time before we even start the discussion of Yov. I want you to understand that this is a guy that within minutes, within the course of a day basically, went from being the wealthiest, most well-off guy in the world, to being someone who had, all his children died in one day. He lost all his wealth, every single thing he had, in, one, in the same day. And now he's covered with this incredible affliction of excruciatingly painful boils one of the reasons why some of the opinions say that Iyov is a mashal that he in fact is a parable because no human being could withstand the suffering that he went through if if it wasn't bad enough he had a really annoying yenta of a wife she comes out and she says something along the lines of well you see (laughs) look where it's got you You and your God. I don't know why. You know, you've kept faith with this God. Just curse him and die. His wife is brilliant. Because she has worked out the whole thing. It takes us to go through the whole book of EOV to work all this out. But she snaps it at once. She realises it's a test. It's a test. And as soon as EOV curses God, it's basically suicide. So she says... I don't understand, you've kept faith with his God, you bring him sacrifices, you're really righteous, look what he's done to you, curse him and die. And Iov utters this phenomenal response to her, which is actually interesting, because the Midrash tells us that, uh, obviously one of the Midrashic lines, because there are many different Midrashic lines in Iov, but one of the Midrashic lines tells us that his wife was who? Anyone know? exeentes, that his wife was Dina, but Yaakov, that his wife was actually Dina. Now, if his wife is Dina, that's really interesting, because she's basically saying to him, look, don't talk to me about tests. I come from a family that knows all about tests. You either pass the test, or you don't, don't groan in your, blah, yeah. says to her, What? I should curse God, we should thank God for the good we have, but not thank Him or not or, or but, but not accept basically the evil that befalls upon us. Everything comes from God, and he sits down in absolute agony, and he is an avail. he is a mourner in tremendous affliction in the meantime, as we get towards the end of chapter two three friends come and visit Eov interesting friends interesting friends you wouldn't want friends like these necessarily one is Eliphaz HaTemani who the Midrash also tells us is very possibly Eliphaz the son of Esav the other is Bildad Ashuchi. Bildad comes and so does Tsofar HaNaamati it's Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. They're three friends of Eov and they come and as they're getting close to Iov, because they heard all the terrible news, the terrible things that had happened to him, as they see him, they haven't even got close to him yet, they just see the picture of this misery and they break down crying. This was their friend Eov that was the paragon of the world and there he is, disgusting mess in a heap of ashes with nothing mourning for his family and his misfortune and they get to him the rabbis tell us that we learn many many halachot if you look at Moed Katan which is the Masechet of Talmud dealing with the laws of Avelot we learn many of the laws about Avelot from their behavior there are many things we learn not to do from their behavior as well they come they, they sit down next to him in his Abelut. And what is the big halacha that we learn? They, they keep shtum. They keep shtum. That's why, if you go, God forbid, to the house of a mourner, you obviously greet them with the nichum Avelim. But you don't open conversation. You wait for the morning to open conversation with you. This we learn from the three friends of Iov that sat down next to him and they don't say anything and they sit there with Iov saying nothing and the friend saying nothing for a week. Seven days. The whole Shiva. Nothing is said. I want you to imagine what it would be like God forbid go. Imagine going to visit someone who lost their entire family in one hit. It'd be massive. They sit there and they say nothing for a week. When the week is ended, and here we here we start the real dialogue. Here we start really the Book of Eov. Everything to now has been prologue. That means it's just grounding the story. Now we start the guts of the book. I want to go through it fairly quickly. Chapter three opens with Eov opening his mouth at the end of a week of silence. And these three have been sitting there, and nothing happening except Eov sobbing and scraping the scabs from his body. Now, the world is divided into two types of people. Those who like birthdays and those who don't. Who likes birthdays? I like birthdays. I like my birthday. Everybody's nice to me on my birthday or tries to be. It's not always easy to be nice to me. EOV is definitely in the category of people that does not like birthdays. He especially doesn't like his birthday. There are a few sentences uttered by Yerim Yahu, the prophet, about his birthday, but they don't come anywhere near. The curses that Yov places on his day of birth. Not only his day of birth, the very night he was conceived, he curses. He curses the the womb of his mother that opened up for him. He curses the light he ever saw. He curses the day. He can't curse God. Some tell us that that he wants to curse God and he can't, so he, he, he transfers all that anger on his own life. There is, of course, another sublimated idea in here as well that many commentators pick up on any of and is an ongoing theme we'll look at potentially. And that is that in the ancient world, there was very, very strong belief in astrology. And astrology was particularly powerful in its impact upon the day that you were born. That determined what was going to happen through your life. So it wasn't just the case that he's wishing, I wish I was never born, I hate the fact that I'm alive, which was of course the big theme, but there's an underlying theme potentially as well that he's cursing the day he was born, because it was astrologically a bad day. We're going to come back to that a little later, because obviously if we ascribe things to astrological forces, then we're taking it out of the realm of divine providence. But certainly, chapter 3 is entirely devoted to Iyov cursing his birthday. Interestingly enough, he doesn't yet talk about himself and what he may have done to bring this about. He just doesn't want to live He he knows he can commit suicide, but he won't do it. Therefore, he's condemned to suffer. He's condemned to suffer. And he doesn't like it any more than anyone would. He's feeling awful. And he curses the day he was born. Chapter 4. The first of the friends, Eliphaz, opens his mouth. Now, unfortunately, many of us have been to visit people sitting shiva. Some of us have sat shiva ourselves. We've all at some point or other probably, except maybe some of the younger people in this room, been to the house of an avel. And some of us have seen different forms of behavior happen at the house of mourners. Yeah? Everybody know what I'm talking about? No one can come close to the level of insensitivity displayed by Eliphaz and what he says first of all he turns around to Yiov and he says i oh, don't be so pathetic you know you're the one who, when other people were suffering, you used to go round and lend a helping hand, a comforting word here and there. You know, you're the righteous Eyeb, you're helping everyone. But now that it happens to you, oh, it's so terrible. And then he utters the unbelievably insensitive words. Can you imagine this happens to Eyov? And he utters him, Happy is the man. Whom God chastises. Imagine saying that to someone in Avelot. It's no wonder that God gets angry with that he later on. But he says this this is all in chapters 4 and 5. Look, here's how it works, Eeyov. And here's why, you know, your protestations about, oh, I don't want to leave, it's all terrible, is pathetic. You're not Hamlet. Here's how it works. We agree on several things. Everything comes from God. We know that God is just. God is the perfect justice. And we also know that God's divine providence is absolute. That God controls everything. That everything that happens comes from God. Let's put these two together. God is perfect justice. Everything comes from God. Look at you. Whoa. You must have sinned. This must be punishment. There's no other explanation for that. This is punishment. Accept it here, cheerfully. I mean, it's interesting because Eliphaz says to him... Uh, the famous words are, Can a man be more righteous than God? Whereas in fact, Iov hasn't quite got to talk about his own righteousness situation yet. But nevertheless, Eliphaz is right into him saying, This is a punishment. <sighs> what does Iov answer to that? Chapter 6 and 7 of Iov. What is the he answer? Punishment. You call this a Punishment. This is not a punishment. This is a war. God is at war against me. I mean, punishment I can understand. But look what's happened to me. Bang, 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 bang. How, am I, how, how can I even begin to understand why this is happening to me? But I'll tell you one thing. I don't deserve it. Therefore, I'm left with a Dilemma. I understand your reasoning Eliphaz. I do. We have divine justice and we have absolute providence. But one of them has to go. I'm the living example of that. One of them has to go and I'll tell you what it is. I am not going to argue against the proposition that God is just. Therefore I'm left with only one conclusion. God does not control everything God's big, God's concerned with a great many things but on the little level where we are I'm in the hands of the Mazalot I'm in the hands of the forces of nature God's providence is not absolute obviously just jumping slightly philosophically, the Rambam is very excited by this. The Rambam and similarly the Ralbag and other famous philosophers in the Jewish tradition ascribe to each of the characters in the book of Ev a different philosophical position in relation to providence. For the Rambam, Eyov is wrong. And he's enunciating a classic Aristotelian position. Or what the Rumbum describes as an Aristotelian position. The Rumbum's biggest critic on that position, of course, is Spinoza. But we might come back to that later in the talk. But Iov is definitely saying, God's providence is limited. There is no other explanation to this. In chapter 8, Bildad, the next friend, opens his mouth. He says, look, Iov... You know, Eliphaz has got a point here. Imagine, imagine, imagine not shutting up there. Imagine continuing this discussion. I mean, there, it's for me, and I know that some, some people are going to look at me weirdly when I say this, for me, there are definitely aspects of the book of Eov that are funny, if not hilarious. It, it is almost impossible to conceive that people could be so insensitive. Bildad then says, look, sometimes, sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer the wicked prosper for their detriment and the righteous suffer for their benefit chapters 9 and 10 is Job's response to this that's bizarre in the extreme says Job that's not got to be nonsense how can two happenings have the exact opposite effect And if so, what's the point? If you were going to tell me, okay, if the wicked always prosper and the righteous always suffer, then fine. But if it's just like sometimes this, sometimes that, and look at me. It just doesn't make sense to me. There would be no point to any of that. Chapter 11. Sophia opens his mouth with tremendous sensitivity and says, look, Eol's Just because you talk a lot doesn't mean you're (laughs) right. He actually says it. You know, it could be that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper because... Well, it could be that the righteous suffer because what God is actually doing is punishing them for sins that they will commit. And therefore he's, as we might say... Lending them of their iniquities, but it's all for the purpose of divine justice. He utters the famous words, <laughs> Could you actually work out divine justice for yourself? I don't think so. And then in a massive speech in chapters 12 to 14, Iyov comes back and he says, "This is unbelievable. You know what you're doing. You know what this is like? Oh. You're so smart, imachem tamut You know, wisdom's gonna die with you guys. You are really smart. I mean, it's very sarcastic. It's very bitter. It's very angry. Whoever wrote the Book of Yov was a complete genius because he's able to enunciate the anger and bitterness that Yov is feeling at having to have this discussion, let alone what's happened to him. He says, "You know what this is like? This is like a room full of people, and they're all laughing at someone." This one person in the room is a laughing stock. They're the only person that's not laughing. Everybody in the room is laughing at them. And when this person says, why is everybody laughing at me? He gets told, because laughter is given to the righteous. Whereas in fact, the very fact that they're laughing at him means that they're wicked. But no, no. Laughter is given to the righteous. Why? Because, you know, laughing is pleasurable. Therefore, they must be righteous. Because pleasure is given to the righteous. Because that's exactly what it feels like for me now, stuck here with you guys. Chapter 15. Eliphaz. Bang! There are three cycles of conversations between Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sofar, and Eyov answering each one. It's all back and forth. There's three. Every cycle is slightly different. The first cycle we might actually want to call the punishment cycle. They're talking about this very difficult philosophical issue of divine providence versus justice versus what's happened to Eyov. In the second cycle, which we might call the providence cycle, Eliphaz says, You know what, Iyov? That's your sin. Right there. You see, we have a famous expression in Jewish thought. It's an Aramaic. It's a famous expression brought in the Gemara and brought in Midrash. It's classically ascribed to people who deny the existence of, of the divine force in the world. It's called Leit Din V'Leit Dayan. There is no judgment. There is no judge. Well, there's no discussion of Leit Dayan in the book of EOV. Everybody is aware that God exists. No one's getting up and saying, I don't think God exists. It simply wasn't a thought that people had in the ancient world. But there's definitely a discussion of late din, that there's no judgment. What's that first word you're saying, late? Late. Late is in Aramaic, meaning there isn't. Late din ve late dayan. and din ve en In other words, that's your sin. That's your sin, EOV that you've had in your heart and that you're expressing now you don't believe there's divine justice in the world. It's about time you did to Teshuvah. Now you see why this thing has come to you. And Job of course in chapter 16 and 17 comes back and says is it not enough that I have to put up with all this suffering that I have to put up with your nonsense and your accusations it's very, very harsh. Eov is actually making the friends realize that they, if anything, are part of this suffering. With these tremendous accusations. I'm having this thought as a result of what's happening to me. I'm desperate to understand. This is not the sin. Bildad comes back in chapter 18. And he says basically, So, tell me, Eov." Uh, you're saying that because of what happened to you, therefore, God's justice doesn't exist in the world. Is that really what you're saying? Maybe it really is something that, so far, I've said before, it's about wisdom. It's about the fact that, let's transcribe this to another level. Why can't you just say, that you don't understand, God's justice? Iov comes back and says, look, Look at me, look what's happened. You guys are going to be punished for your inability to reason this through with me. I need to understand. Once again, so far it comes back, it says it's very simple in chapter twenty. The wicked are punished, the righteous are rewarded. Eov chapter twenty one. No, look at me, look at the world, look around. Everywhere I see wickedness and I see wicked people prospering. It's back and forth. Chapter versus chapter versus chapter. They're trying to prove it. In chapter 22, there's a shift. And Eliphaz starts talking about this concept of wisdom. Now we're going to have a big discussion of wisdom. Because Eliphaz says, you know what? Maybe wisdom is not the whole point. Maybe, what? God's righteousness is dependent on his ability to explain himself to you, Eov. Do Teshuvah. That's your only answer. And in the famous chapter 23, Eov comes and he says, No. If God is just, if there is justice in the world, I need it to be a justice I can understand. The whole concept of justice belongs here in the world. I, as a human being, need to be able to understand it. It's not enough for me to be told that there's a level of divine wisdom way beyond what I can access. Everywhere I look, it's not the case that most of the wicked people in the world suffer and most of the righteous people do well. Everywhere I look, it's random. And moreover, Even when the wicked people are made to pay for their sins, i.e. they die, they tend to die quickly. Look at me. My agony is being prolonged. I am being made to suffer unbelievably. There is something acute happening here. I am desperate. He yearns for God's wisdom. I yearn for God's wisdom. God is terrifying. I need to understand what is happening. And his description. This is all in... Uh, Chapter 23 and 24, in his descriptions of of the wicked, it all focuses famously, of course, on social justice. The people who rob the widows and oppress the orphans and who rip people off and manipulate economies and who take away, you know, expropriate possessions from other people unjustly. All those people are doing just fine, thank you very much. All right. And then in chapter 25, back comes Bill Dudd and he says, you know what? And the famous famous expression that we all know, that we all know. Ose Shalom Bim romav, He who makes peace in his high places. Look, you know what? Maybe Iov there's a point to what you're saying about the fact that maybe it's all given over to the forces of nature. Because by this time Iyov has more or less worked out the point. He's more or less worked out that the world is being given over to Satan. He even says that the world is being given over to the adversary. It's, 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 it's not God directly. And therefore, I'm at the hand of forces that I don't understand. And Bildad comes back and says, well, somewhere up there, God in his essential divine justice is making it all work out. And then in this massive speech, 26 to 31, Eov winds it all up, but he winds it all up in a very big way. Because the says, "Look, let's say I accept your point. Let's say I accept your point. Let's say I accept your point that, first of all, ad <inaudible> asir Until I die, I will not deny my righteousness." I have done nothing wrong. That's the first thing you need to know. And the last thing you need to know, right throughout the book, Iyov has been going on and on and on and on. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't deserved this. I haven't deserved this. I haven't deserved this. And until I die, I will not repudiate that claim. But let's imagine that you're right. Let's imagine I am being punished. Let the punishment fit the crime. Is this what I deserve? I'm being made to suffer more than any other person alive. It's not the case that, you know, I was walking down, you know, King George Street and I didn't look when I crossed the lights and a car came and banged me in the bum and now like, I'm like this. Right? All right? But look at me. I'm being made to suffer more than any other person in the world. How does that fit with my conception of myself? And then he calls God to dialogue. He says, I need God to come here and explain this to me. And then it actually says. In fact, Eyov says, Eyov has now finished. I'm sick of this discussion. I'm sick of you. Not not you, the three visitors that have come to see him. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Until God actually appears and explains, you know what? I'm wasting my time talking to you, Archi Parachim. I need God to come and explain this. I haven't sinned and I'm suffering more than anyone else. Why? Now, at that point, we're up to chapter 32 of the book of Eov. Don't worry, there's only 42 chapters. We've covered uh, 31 of them. At chapter 32, what should probably happen here is that God should come along and explain it all. But before God gets a chance to do that we have another character. Suddenly there's another figure in the book called Elihu. Now when you read Elihu there are many 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 commentators on the figure of Elihu one big Midrashic line in the Gemara and so on is that Elihu, in fact, was Yitzhak. when you read Elihu, you realize that you're looking at someone who is... I always get the impression that Elihu is a, a very well-meaning, very orthodox rabbi who's trying to come along and placate everything on this, but in fact, he gets very angry. Elihu who is not mentioned at the beginning, so there's other scholars who think that Eliel may have been put into the book of EOV, but it, I don't think so. It works very seamlessly in terms of the book. Eliel has a very, very big speech. Eliel is younger than all the others. He's younger than EOV. He's younger than all the friends. And he says, that's why I didn't say anything till now, because I'm waiting. And Eliel gives a speech lasting about six chapters, interspersed right there. Some people think it's an interpolation because... What happens right after that is God does come along. So they say that God was meant to come along when Eov said, uh, said, I need to have a dialogue with God. God comes along. But in fact, we've now got these six chapters of Elil. Eliel was angry at Eov, And he's angry at the friends because they didn't give Eov the right answer. And you have to read Eliel many times to really understand what he's saying. Some commentators, not not, uh, traditional Jewish commentators, but some commentators have been very scornful of the speech of Eliel because they can't see it adding anything. But he's actually saying something very different from what the other three were saying. First of all, he says, I've got to say this because this whole thing is sending the wrong message to the world, especially to the wicked. They're going to get a very, very wrong message out of this. They're going to do what they want. Because as a result of Iyov's thinking, they're going to think there's no divine justice in the world. But I'm also angry with you guys, he says to the friends. Why? Because you have the wrong conception of God. True. We do have skhar v'onesh ba'olam. We do have reward and punishment in the world. It does exist. But that's not all that's going on. And that's not all that defines the relationship between God and human beings. Lohamau moré, There is no one that loves the righteous like God and there is no teacher like God. Sometimes the righteous suffer, Eov, not because they've done anything wrong, but because God wants to bring them to enlightenment I don't recall you complaining about the lack of justice in the world when you had it good when things were going well for you I don't remember you standing there screaming about injustice you did what you could but you weren't lying on the ground moaning like this about how there's no God in the world. You needed to be brought to a form of enlightenment. And for all you know, and, 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 and the rabbis pick up on this massively because they say that as a result of his self-satisfaction, Iyov was actually at the point, before all these tragedies befell him, of being about to rebel against God and say, Well, you know what? I'm looking around. Uh, and I'm seeing that there are other people who are not bringing all the sacrifices I'm bringing and do not as righteous as I am and they're doing just as well so maybe I don't need to do all that God is saving you from that path He is bringing this upon you so you will gain enlightenment so that you will not sin not as punishment for sins you're about to commit or sins you have committed but to prevent you from doing that but to bring you in fact as well into a much deeper and clarified relationship with God that is not mechanically based on an equation of I'm righteous, God is good. I'm righteous, God is just. I'm righteous, God will be good to me. You have to get out of that framework. You have to break it open. That's the whole point of this suffering. God is teaching you to be enlightened in your relationship with God. And then in chapter 38, God appears. And God is not exactly explaining himself to Eov in a way that we would understand entering the discussion. God comes along and says famously, where were you when i laid the foundations of the world i created nature i control nature nature is a massive force you think you think that i don't look into every detail of what's happening i don't there's no divine providence or divine justice in the natural happenings do you i control every aspect of nature I created it. Man, human beings, cannot control nature. I can. Does that help us? God then talks about two massive beings that he actually controls, could let unleash at any moment, but he actually controls them. And he shows them this to really demonstrate the enormous, infinite power of God in the world. I'm talking about these two famous beasts, one called Behemoth, and one called Livyatan. The two of them are mentioned in Yov. lots of explanations and commentaries and possibly what they might represent. Basically, the whole point of chapters 38 to 41 in of is really to show us that God's power is immense, it's infinite, it's, it applies to every single thing in nature, God feeds every little living thing, he has to worry about the rain, he has to think about rain that falls where no human beings live, he needs to deal with the hungry of the young, of every type of animal. Every single facet of nature, every single molecule comes under God's discretion. God is angry with the friends, so he must obviously agree to some extent, at least from the text we can see, with the assertions of Elio that in fact the friends got it wrong because their conception of God was still mechanical. It still relied on this equation of reward and punishment. And God is coming to show that God does not control the world like that. There is reward and punishment in the world, but in relationships with human beings who have free choice about their behavior, God opens up entire avenues of perception and enlightenment. And then, of course, in chapter 42 the last chapter of the book, God restores Eov. He restores him. He makes the friends offer sacrifices. Iov has to pray for the friends. It's only when he prays for the friends that he then gets his own wealth restored and it gets restored double. For those of you who question the apparent justice of what happened to the first lot of children, there are opinions, I think brought down in the Ramban, that the... The children were not actually killed, they were just taken away and now they're brought back. Either way, everything's now happy. Iov gets restored, he's got his wealth back, he's got kids, and more than enough wealth, twice as much wealth, lots of kids. His daughters are stunning, everybody's very excited by them. And Iov lives for another 140 years and then he dies a very, you know, sated and happy person. We're winding up. Uh, But I I just want to highlight some of the major themes that I want to take out of EOV. Because as you can see, even just going through the book, it's a massively deep book. Every chapter that I just gave over in summary is really an entire poem's worth of discussion on all the aspects of each point that I've expressed. The real essence of the book is about providence. It's about to what extent does God control the reality in which we live and to what extent is that control tied up with God's plan of justice for the world on the one hand and here's the amazing thing about Iov is that the whole time this is going on the whole massive chapter after chapter after chapter where Eov is going I don't understand I don't understand we the reader understand perfectly well why this has happened because we read the beginning of the book this is a bet between God and Satan. This whole thing is a test. It is in fact a test and it is in fact simply the result of God wanting to illustrate something beyond divine justice. You see, once we have the revolution of the prophets of Israel, we need to guard against this mechanical interpretation of our relationship with God. Our relationship with God in Jewish sources, must be a balance between ahava and Yirah. It must be a balance between love of God and fear of God. But it cannot be a mechanical process. By the way, there's some very interesting aspects of, on Satan I just wanted to mention. According to Saji Gaon, do you know who the Satan is? We know famously that the Satan is it's the Zahara, is the Malchamavid, all the rest of it. But the Satan is in fact one of Iyov's neighbors. It's a person. Meaning, it's a person that was so consumed with anger and jealousy at Iyov's good fortune and at the relationship between Iyov's righteousness and his wealth that just came to God with this plea. I mean, when, you, when I first read that, I thought, well, no, no, But then I started to think about that, that so much ill feeling and evil energy is created in the world by people relating to each other. Sajjah also has a very, very other interesting insight into the book of Yom, that really Hashem's justice in the world is already fulfilled from the moment you have life. That's the chesed That's the kindness, the benevolence that God gives you that really fulfills God's justice in the world. Everything beyond that is superfluous. This is a point that Iyov needed to arrive at. In Avot the Rabbi Natan, we find out that Iyov sinned in his heart. That they tend to agree with Eliphaz. That the fact that Iyov was casting so much aspersion on divine justice in the world, that in fact this is the very thing that brought a lack of divine justice, an apparent lack of divine justice upon him. Therefore, the punishment, in a sense, did fit the crime. Kabbalistically, what I'm about to tell you is a bit wild, but it's recorded in several places in, uh, in Kabbalistic books, that Eov was a reincarnation of anyone know? Iyov is a reincarnation of, and I know when I say this, you're going to go, that's so obscure. But just spend two seconds and see if you can work it out. Iyov, according to uh, the Marchur of Chaim Vital in uh, Shara Gilgulim, and also according to in his book on Gilgul, Iyov is a reincarnation of Terach, the father of Avraham. Terach, was an idol worshipper. However, Terach arrives at a rectification of his soul through the merit of his son Avraham. So he gets a Gilgul as a really righteous guy, who everything has gone well for, but then he still has to have effected a punishment for all the avodah he committed when he was alive the first time, so he has to undergo all these processes. There may be more mystical connections between those two figures, but I leave that with you to contemplate. I want to finish... And believe me, I know, the time has really sped. You've sat here for enough and it's a warm evening. And I can also tell by some of your faces that but he hasn't really come to terms with the book. I know. Eov is a very, very difficult book. But I want to finish with a very, very powerful thought that might tie it up for us. Because there's a message screaming from Eov. People say that Eov is a navi. People say that the book of Eov is a prophetic text. Some of you may be familiar with this idea. This idea, which is an idea that's reached out independently in several sources, but was interestingly made, probably in its best enunciation, by Eli Wiesel. Iyov is the Jewish people. Which people have gone through a greater level of suffering? Which people suffered more than the Jewish people in the Shoah, in the Holocaust what can we say about the Holocaust? is there any justification that we can come up with? it's at the level of it's at the level of there is nothing that we can say and yet, and you know I'm sure many people in this room know people personally that came out of the camps and said there's no God and can we blame them Elie Wiesel says that the book of Iyov is the book of our generation. That we sit and we mourn in the shadow of this gigantic event that we haven't even been able to begin to integrate into Jewish theology yet. And to understand how did this happen in a world of divine justice. I'm talking about the Holocaust specifically, but you could go over the whole of Jewish history and you could look at this. And if you look at the descriptions of Eov and you look at what happens to Eov. So what if we take that understanding and we bring it back into the book of Eov We look at the message of Elil. We look at the message of Hashem at the end. That in fact we can't always try and equate the concept of reward and punishment with all of our behavior. Sometimes, both individually and collectively, we go through experiences which are meant to bring us to a greater understanding of our relationship with God and our greater understanding of a relationship with the world around us. Divine justice, obviously, is intimately linked with our own concept of justice. This is what Eov is screaming about in chapter 23. I need a concept of justice that I can understand. And if Hashem restored Eov after he passed that test to a much greater destiny and a much greater future, so may Am Yisrael also be renewed and be restored to a far, far greater and impressive destiny, even than the history that it's gone through so far. you for listening to find out more about david solomon's books recordings and classes or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month visit davidsolomon.online